If you had any doubt left that Cenk Uger is a two-faced sellout, you need to watch Jimmy Dore's latest show. This tweet battle was featured on the show. Cenk is trying to gaslight us to a higher degree than even AOC and Mark Pokin. Cenk says, I give a lot of shit and I take a lot of shit. I've fought a thousand battles against every wing of every party, but I don't get sensitive about it. Jimmy Dore has his feelings hurt so much he lashes out wildly against all other progressives. His angle is to be the most pure. And Cenk is calling himself a progressive. It's the same as Hillary Clinton calling herself a progressive. And she's paying him to be a progressive according to the same standards that she is a progressive. I think we need to give up using that word altogether. And then Jimmy comes back, and to his eternal credit, he calls a spade a spade. I'm a union buster, former pro-war Republican, took $20 million from Clinton donors and still pretend I'm independent so I can beg poor people for money three times a week from my cell phone in direct marketing campaigns while I smear true indie media because they advocate for force the vote. I told you earlier you can go to forcethevote.org if you want to get on board with this. Definitely watch this show debunking Cenk Uger's misinformation about Force the Vote. I'll link to it underneath. I'm not going to steal any thunder at all from this video. You just need to go watch it yourself. Multiple times in this video, Jimmy calls out Cenk for his Clinton machine donations. If Cenk has any following after this, if TYT has any following after this, we know who they are. They are shit libs, pure and simple. If you're still watching Cenk Uger, you are a shit lib. You are a tool of the oligarchy, and you are a wonderful, integrated part of the Clinton machine. I have to say that I'm proud of Jimmy for sticking his neck out like this. There is a lot of power behind the people who pay Jenk, and so they're not going to like this at all. And Jimmy, you know you're on the right track because the right people are opposing you. And now we jump to a brilliant article by John Davis called, What Shall We Call It? Spoiler alert, we shall not call it democracy. And let me preface this article by saying the reason we fight people like Cenk Uger is laid out perfectly in this article. There was no coup. American democracy worked as designed. It took the progressive energies unleashed in opposition to the Trump administration and entirely neutered them with the orderly election of the avuncular Joseph Biden, protector of the empire, the military-industrial complex, banking and finance, insurance, Biotech, Silicon Valley, the revolving door bureaucracies of the Washington swamplands and the wheedling parasites of K Street. The whole rotten armature of the Republic will be put back together by Biden and his crew despite the overwhelming evidence of its, never mind his, decrepitude. Under Trump, the nation has absorbed extraordinary episodes of domestic chaos closing in on 300,000 citizens killed in a disastrously mismanaged pandemic, four years of deliberately divisive white supremacist rule by the Republicans, witch hunts by the Democrats, an impeachment of the president, and this year the most remarkable series of iconoclastic demonstrations against the country's historically rooted values of oppression, exploitation, enslavement, and the annihilation of indigenous peoples during the Black Lives Matter uprising. Yet the recent federal election is an affirmation of business as usual, a celebration of a return to normality despite the startling indications of the system's bodily corruption. Faith in the restorative power of our democracy remains high. 
faith in the power of voting remains undiminished and, for a little over half of the electorate, a sense of victory hangs in the air. This country's revered institution of government by the people for the people began with the advent of Jacksonian democracy in the 1820s. A dramatic expansion of the franchise had occurred when new states were added to the Union which imposed no property requirements for voting, prompting most of the original states to remove their restrictions on the enfranchisement of white males. For almost half a century, the vote had not extended much beyond propertied oligarchs. Men of similar status and the fundamentally aristocratic impulses of the nation's founders and from whose ranks the first five presidents of the United States were elected. The mobilization of frontiersmen, small farmers, and the urban poor into politics was of a piece with contemporary revolutionary movements in Europe, but in the United States this radicalism was inspired by a pursuit of, quote, freedom rather than social and economic equality its citizens being under the sway of national mythologies that often weighed more heavily with them than their immediate economic circumstance. It was freedom from that motivated them, notably perceived government interference in their competitive commercial, agrarian, or manufacturing pursuits. From the start of their democratic engagement, white males in America were, or aspired to be, entrepreneurial and independent such that wage slaves often considered their lot a bump in the road that would lead to property independence rather than a stable economic relationship between them and their employer. I want to bump in here and say that that's sort of like the lottery. People who have no possibility of ever being true capitalists bet on the lottery so that they can get ahead of their friends and neighbors. We've been sold a bill of goods. And the reason we buy that bill of goods is because we are greedy. We are acquisitive, competitive, greedy sons of bitches. And now daughters too, since daughters have been included in this. The American dream is to exploit everyone you can get away with exploiting so you'll be ahead of them. So what if your ship hasn't come in yet? As long as there's the chance that the system will allow you to get ahead and exploit other people, you want that system to remain in place. So who gives a shit about liberty and justice for all according to that American dream? Pretty much nobody. Back to the story. Thus, the organization of workers was rarely prioritized and when it was, heavily opposed by factory and workshop owners. Jackson's election in 1828 established the Democrats as the party of the people and he as the people's president. But while Jackson received a mandate from the vastly expanded electorate of white males, the election exposed traits which continue to characterize American democracy. His election depended on his having crafted a powerful cult of personality largely based on a hagiographic biography let me stop here for a moment and tell you that just means a flattering but not necessarily true biography that he had commissioned. He celebrated the freedom of the American people whilst ignoring the racial subjugation that shattered the country and he entirely dismissed the rights of indigenous people in pursuit of the economic potential of their lands. Specifically, his successful removal of native peoples from their homelands in which Americans speculated, on which they homesteaded, and on which slaves were driven to clear-cut and drain in order to plant cotton, laid the foundation for America's unparalleled wealth. That wealth was and is harvested by the few who then and now use a portion of it to influence the voting behavior of the many. This is me breaking in again. That's why the oligarchs don't like YouTube channels like this one. 
They don't want anyone muscling in on their business of trying to influence the voting behavior of the many. What does it matter to them if some of us are using our platforms to influence the voting behavior of the many for the benefit of the many? That's not what they want. They want to influence the voting behavior of the many to benefit them. Back to the story. In order to understand how we got to this 21st century moment, barely more than a month away from the swearing-in of Joe Biden as this country's 64th president, who is regarded by many as the potential savior of a democracy, I think he meant this country's 46th president, not 64th. Maybe like me, he has dilsexia. Anyway, barely more than a month away from the swearing-in of Joe Biden as this country's 46th president, who is regarded by many as the potential savior of a democracy that was plunged into an abyss by his Republican predecessor, it is useful to consider the road this nation has traveled since the establishment of Jackson's broad, but highly conflicted, government by the people. From the beginning, the great paradox of American freedom was its practice of slavery. Dear viewers and listeners, we've spoken about this before when I've contrasted freedom from bullying to freedom to bully. That's the great paradox of American freedom. It was an issue not fully broached until the Emancipation Movement forced the attention of the nation on its horrors, eventually splitting the Union in half over this most basic issue of human rights. Its military conclusion cost three-quarters of a million lives and ultimately denied liberated African Americans full participation in the nation's democracy and deliberately stunted their economic opportunities. After the war, the southern states practiced the de facto segregation of Jim Crow for almost a century and carried out terror lynchings as a strategy of subduing the black population for more than eight decades. Despite its defeat, the culture, the military heroes, and the flag of the Confederate States of America, a state that subjugated and tortured fully 45% of its population, are still celebrated. The pretense of democracy in such circumstances is a travesty. Well into the 19th century, America remained a substantially agrarian economy, but the massive influx of European migrants not only spurred urban industrialization, but also promoted the consolidation of small family producers, which Jefferson had promoted as the bedrock of democratic independence, into vastly more efficient factory farms. Late 19th century populism attempted to marshal disaffected farm laborers, factory workers, coal miners, and iron workers to resist the increasing concentration of wealth fostered under laissez-faire government policies, while workers questioned whether freedom could survive in conditions of oppression, injustice, and poverty. Economic inequality increased dramatically in this era of technological innovation and the corporate monopolization of essential market sectors. It was a situation that went unchallenged until Congress passed a series of antitrust legislation in the 1890s tarnishing the so-called Gilded Age and encouraging the social activism and political reform that comprised the Progressive Era. America's triumphant involvement in the First World War and its leading role in the peace negotiations resulted in a celebration of its role as a beacon of freedom and a champion of democratic values. It was also a time of rampant xenophobia reflected in the passage of restrictive immigration laws and the total exclusion of Chinese nationals. The mythology of America as the land of freedom and opportunity was again abraded by the harsh reality of its politics.
When the Harding administration, 1921 to 1923, collapsed under the weight of its own corruption, it left the country in the hands of Calvin Coolidge, who promoted policies that fueled the Roaring Twenties, a period in which American society finally threw off the social and moral strictures of the 19th century. It was a time in which many ordinary Americans pursued economic opportunity in a careening stock market, but their hopes were dashed when the market crashed in a violent economic collapse, which many of the elite were sufficiently savvy to avoid. The Great Depression, which immediately followed, and the economic and environmental disaster of the Dust Bowl, ended conservative laissez-faire economics and initiated an era of activist, interventionist liberalism under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Despite the New Deal, abstract notions of freedom and equality did not survive in conditions of extreme social need and were only revived by the surge of patriotism unleashed by the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. The start of World War II ended the Great Depression and its conclusion opened an era of unparalleled prosperity which mightily favored the nation's white middle class. Barely drawing a breath at the end of the war in 1945, the U.S. military embarked on a decades-long struggle with communist regimes across Asia, a Cold War with the Soviet Union, and proxy wars across the planet. The armaments industry had not existed in America before the war, but on leaving office in January 1961, President Eisenhower warned of the development of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry. As he correctly predicted, the development of the military-industrial complex has had an immense influence on the nation's governance. Simply put, the economics of empire favors the corporate elite while pauperizing the precariat. I love that word, precariat. That's exactly what it is. The proletariat becomes the precariat under capitalism. The growth of the defense budget is such that it now consumes close to half of all the federal government's discretionary spending. It is the line item most favored in the ideologically driven pursuit of draining wealth from taxpaying Americans and redistributing it to defense contractors, a characteristic only amplified by members of Congress who, devoted to the harvesting of arms industry cash to fund their re-elections, are much inclined to inflate the defense budget rather than prioritizing the needs of their constituents. Ding, ding, ding. The New Deal has enjoyed a broad consensus of support while the country was an economic extremis, but when good times returned after World War II, conservatives were determined to reclaim the idea of freedom to their cause, which necessitated a renunciation of anything that smacked of the enhanced state control of people's economic lives that FDR had introduced in the 1930s. Similarly motivated after his experience of German and Italian fascism, the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek published The Road to Serfdom, 1944, in which he suggested that state interference in its citizens' well-being would potentially subvert their freedom and return them to an impoverished condition of servitude. Milton Friedman, the influential American economist, took this to mean in practical, actionable terms that political power should be decentralized, government limited, and the market economy be given total freedom to work its magic. Thus inspired, conservatives in the 1960s began to equate individual freedom with unregulated capitalism. Let me break in here and say that this is what we're talking about when we're arguing with Cornell West that neoliberalism is not just conservatives, but also liberals, traditional liberals. 
and you can therefore call them all neoliberals, you can call them all liberals, you can call them all conservatives, and all of that is true. But for the sake of the way I've used terminology in this show, I would like to keep referring to all of this as neoliberalism. And therefore, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are neoliberals just as much as Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or even Jimmy Carter. So let me start this sentence over, and then when I say conservatives, you can think neoliberals. Thus inspired, conservatives in the 1960s began to equate individual freedom with unregulated capitalism in a return to the earliest principles of those frontiersmen, small farmers, and the urban poor who had driven Jacksonian democracy. Goldwater enthusiastically adopted Friedman's precepts and added the notion of law and order as a necessary counterweight to the anarchic student demonstrations of the 60s and the perceived threats of both the civil rights movement and Johnson's landmark legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Let me break in again and say that that's why people who prioritize law and order, people like Sagar and Jetty, are on the wrong side of this argument. These are the pearl clutchers who don't want anyone to take their property. These are the comfy people, both Democrats and Republicans, who don't want their stuff to be threatened. And most of all, they don't want their status to be threatened. So the people who would vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary, but vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden in the general election, are these kinds of people. Call them comfy, call them pearl clutchers, call them assholes, and all of those are true. Back to the story. His bellicose nationalism and apparent willingness to deploy the atomic bomb in its pursuit may have doomed his campaign, but his ideas were largely taken up by Ronald Reagan, who came to power in 1981. Reagan turned the nation into an avatar of neoliberalism in which both the public good and political engagement are disparaged, leaving a wafer-thin democracy characterized by the duopoly of supposedly antagonistic parties with which to paper over an oligarchic state. That's another ding-ding-ding. Say it with me. Ding-ding-ding! Every two years, members of the two parties compete for the approbation of the voting public who, regardless of their choice, give unwitting political legitimacy to the brute force of the market. That's why we don't vote for neoliberals. That's why we don't vote for corporatists, under any circumstances. It's how we give an unwitting political legitimacy to the brute force of the market. That's why friends don't let friends vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Or if it comes to it, Kamala Harris. This process, which Thomas Carlyle, the 19th century historian and philosopher called the cash nexus, remains at the heart of American democracy in which a vote for either party ensures the continuation of their danse macabre. It is this legacy to which Biden, as the country's next president, is now heir. Rightfully so, it may be argued, since he has been partially responsible for the last 50 years of its most reactionary manifestations. In order to heal racial injustice, economic injustice, environmental injustice, and to fill the voids of mind, body, and spirit that exist in the American commonweal, vast sums of public treasure need to be expended. We need those stinking stimulus checks. And we need them to be monthly. And we need Medicare for all. That was me if you couldn't tell. That intention is currently blocked both by a philosophy of governance that privileges the free market and by the impregnable massif that is the military establishment, the mastodon in the room of a profoundly unquiet American society. Such socially targeted expenditures might prevent America from sinking further into a quagmire of pathological dependencies, 
the gloss of its overconsumption since World War II having long since been made pallid by the endemic inadequacies of healthcare, education, infrastructure, nutrition, housing, income distribution, and the historically charged racial injustices that haunt the nation. These represent profound failures of state in terms of both remediation and restitution. Such failures demand a revolutionary refocusing of the purposes of government. Such failures demand a revolutionary refocusing of the purposes of government, a redefinition of democracy, and a relinquishment of the grand myths that have sustained them. Myths that have weaponized the base economic impulses of freedom-loving conservatives over the life of the republic. These are the people who keep waiting for their ship to come in. That refocus will come with a price tag, but one that is almost certainly less than the inordinate sums channeled to the military-industrial complex now justified by the maintenance of a superannuated empire. Redemption from the sins of the past is possible. The nations of Germany and Japan both took the difficult steps to exercise their respective historical cancers which metastasized into nightmares of state-sponsored horror in the first half of the 20th century. South Africa, through the processes of resistance, revolution, and tribunals of truth and reconciliation, replaced a violent white supremacist government with a multiracial democracy in the early 1990s. America's historical sins are well known. That its nuclear arsenal further burdens the human spirit with an existential dread that compounds our everyday intimations of mortality is less recognized. Trump's victory four years ago and his recent defeat were both cries for help from the voting public. After the Civil War, a great and noble effort was made by Americans to heal the wounds of slavery. It was called Reconstruction. The effort was destroyed within a dozen years by the mean and ignoble. Old wounds continue to fester and new lacerations of mind, body, and spirit have continued to assail the nation. It is now time again for the country to make a great and noble effort to heal its wounds. Call it Reconstruction too. I would call it burn it all down and replace it with something that looks like direct democracy. John Davis, as I've told you before, is an architect living in Southern California. Read more of his writing at urbanwildland.org. I now offer sincere apologies to some of the followers of this show who think that John here is a little bit over the top in terms of his academic prowess. His literary prowess is also pretty amazing. Forgive me for loving it, if you can, and for sharing it in such a nerdy, geeky way, but this guy's writing is amazing, and I just have to celebrate it.